Hello and welcome to The Pilgrim Way. My name is Norman Graham and I am a minister in the Baptist Union of Churches in Scotland. Uh, the aim of these signposts is to try and connect the text of the Bible with life today. Revelation chapter 8 When the Lamb broke the seventh seal in the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. And thunder crashed, lightning flashed and there was a terrible earthquake. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One third of the earth was set on fire, one third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One third of the water in the sea became blood. One third of all things living in the sea died, and one third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one third of the rivers, and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Bitterness. It made one third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one third of the sun was struck, and one third of the moon, and one third of the stars, and they became dark and one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, Terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Well, Revelation chapter 8 opens a scene that continues on through until the end of uh, chapter 11. It's too much material for us to cover today in the signpost, so we're going to work our way through it all uh, over the next uh, few signposts. Uh, but we begin by kind of glancing back to track our journey to this point. In chapter 4, John moves from the earthly reality of the situation and circumstances 
of the seven churches to whom Revelation is addressed. And he sees a vision uh, of worship in heaven uh, before the throne of God. And in that vision, a scroll is revealed. It's sealed with seven seals. Jesus is found to be the only one worthy to open the seals. And chapter 6 describes the effects of the opening of the first six seals. And it ends with a, a terrifying vision uh, of the end of the universe as we know it uh, and the pressing question that is asked uh, in the face of God's terrible wrath, who can stand? In chapter 7, the scene shifts to another vision that seeks to answer that very question. Those who can stand on the day of the Lord are those who have been sealed with the seal of God, the 144,000. We saw, as we looked at that, how the, the number's not meant to be understood literally to refer to a group of ethnic Jews who will be saved uh, towards the end of time. Rather, it's a symbolic representation of the entire number of the people of God from every tribe, language group and nation throughout human history. The language that's used in chapter 7 echoes that of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So those who are sealed are those who have responded positively to the message of the gospel of Jesus and have been saved and are sealed with the Holy Spirit. As Beale notes that you look at the second half of chapter 7 and it appears to focus on Christians enjoying their eternal reward, this vast number of believers. Uh, so chapter 7 then is an interlude answering the question of who can stand and with that done the scene shifts back to the opening of the seventh and final seal. The opening of the seventh seal is, is very different from the previous six. Uh, as Michael's notes, as soon as each of the first six seals was opened, John either saw something or heard something or both. When the seventh seal is opened, however, he saw nothing and heard nothing for about half an hour. Now try imagining for a minute that you were doing a dramatic reading of Revelation during a church service and then you get to uh, chapter 8 verse 1 and you stop reading for 30 minutes. There was just total silence. It's very hard to imagine. Although half an hour is not a very long time. Even short silences of just a few moments can be very uncomfortable. Our impulse is to say something to break the silence. As Robbie Monroe might say, many a lawyer's client would have stayed out of jail if they had resisted that impulse to speak to break the silence. 
For the most part, human beings don't like silence. Dallas Willard has noted that total silence is actually quite rare, and what today we would call quiet usually only amounts to a little less noise. Of course, as any Hollywood director will tell you, silence can be very dramatic. But the fact that it's silent in heaven is all the more dramatic and astounding. Revelation 4, 5 and 7 all depict what must have been incredibly loud worship and praise by the 24 elders, the four living creatures, all of the angels, every creature of the air, the land, the sea and a crowd of saints too vast to be counted. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 8, we learn that this praise continues day and night, except when the seventh seal is opened. The silence serves to heighten the tension and give a sense that what is about to be revealed is indeed terrible and awesome. The silence lasts for about half an hour, we're told, but we're probably not meant to understand that as a precise unit of time. In Revelation, the word hour is often used to refer to the suddenness of God's judgment of the wicked. And we've already noted Revelation's connection with the First Testament. And in Daniel in particular, the word half is often associated with times of crisis uh, in judgment. So the term half an hour is probably intended to emphasise the suddenness and unexpectedness of God's judgment. It always comes quickly when we least expect it. In the First Testament, Jeremiah had preached a message calling the people to repent and to warn them that God's judgment was going to fall upon them if they didn't. And he preached that message for about 40 years. And so for 40 years, the people had an opportunity to repent. But as time went on, they kept rebelling against God and nothing had happened. There had been no judgment. Naturally, they therefore assumed that nothing was going to happen. Right up until the moment that it did, when Nebuchadnezzar came knocking on the gates of Jerusalem. Speaking of his final return, Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 44, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in a field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. In other words, just prior to the day of the Lord, the final return of Jesus that ushers in the last judgment, life will be going on as normal one minute until very suddenly 
unexpectedly it will not be going on as normal and everything will change in an instant. The belief in the suddenness of Christ's final return and the need to be ready was a particular focus of the early church. In 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2 uh, and 3, the Apostle Paul wrote, You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. In 2 Peter 3 and 10, the apostle reminded his congregations that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And in the verses that follow that, he makes a plea for holy living in the light of the reality and the certainty and the suddenness of Jesus' final return. In Revelation 16 and 15, the angel with the sixth bowl plague warns that it will happen suddenly like a thief and that those who remain awake and clothed are blessed, by which he means that those who are alert to the judgment of God, who have been sealed, who have been forgiven, are clothed in the white robes of righteousness. They will be blessed. At the end of the silence, seven angels are given seven trumpets and it quickly becomes apparent that these seven trumpets represent seven plagues or judgments. As we have noted, the implication is that these judgments will come suddenly and unexpectedly. We need to keep uh, that in mind because many commentators, preachers and revelation buffs always want to kind of reconstruct a timeline of the events of these judgments. Do they precede Christ's final return or accompany it or follow after it? As we have repeatedly noted in these signposts, John writes about what he sees and hears next and what he sees and hears next is not necessarily what happens next. And the visions come in repeating patterns and cycles. It's likely, therefore, as Wilcock and many other commentators note, that these judgments coincide with the events prior to the opening of the sixth seal. The visions of the seals, trumpets and bowls are three ways of saying the same thing, as Reddish puts that there are three different ways to present the same or similar ideas. John's method here has often been compared to a musical composition in which the composer gives three variations of the same musical theme. This is the, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls are three ways of telling us that what is going to happen. The vision of the seven trumpets picks up the theme of judgment that was begun in Revelation 6 with the opening of the seals and the vision of the seven bowls that will follow uh, do the same. After the trumpets have been handed out, the scene shifts slightly to another angel who comes to the altar and mixes the prayers of the saints with incense and coals from the fire and casts it down upon the earth. The identity of the angel isn't specified, but it may be the angel of God's presence as described in Isaiah 63 and verse 9. Whilst the altar is traditionally understood to be a place of God's mercy, it is also in a sense understood to be a place of God's judgment for it's at the altar that a sacrifice for sin is made and, and there is no mercy for those who reject that sacrifice. Uh, 
The point seems to be here that just as the prayers of the saints in chapter 5 triggered the justice or judgment of God, so too their prayers function in a similar way here. As Michael's notes, prayer is the engine driving the plan of God forward to completion. So don't ever think that your prayers don't matter. They do. Keep praying. They are the engine that's driving the plan and purposes of God. With that, the angels with the seven trumpets made ready to blow. And the first angel blew the first trumpet. Many commentators have noted that the first five trumpets echo the pattern of the five, five of the plagues against Egypt in the Exodus. Judgments that punish the Egyptians for their hardness of heart, their idolatry and their persecution of God's people. And the judgments in Revelation are a response to the same hardness of heart, idolatry and persecution, but their scope is global rather than limited to Egypt. So, as Beale writes, the plagues of the Exodus are now shown to be typological or prophetic foreshadowings of God's judgment against unbelievers throughout the church age, culminating in the last judgment which initiates the final exodus of God's people from this world of captivity to into eternal freedom. Much of the chapter is taken up with the first four trumpets and the judgments they unleash. And like the first four seals of chapter 6, they are kind of set apart from the others. As Michael's notes, the first four judgments are differentiated from the more terrible ones that follow in two ways. First, they affect primarily the natural world rather than the inhabitants of the earth directly. Second, each affects only a third of the earth, trees and grass, the sea, sea creatures and ships and rivers and springs of fresh water, the sun and the moon and the stars, respectively. Whilst many Revelation buffs see these descriptions of fire and hail as literal, it's more likely that they are figurative and are here symbolic of God's holy judgment. Fire is often used in the First Testament to depict God's judgment against sin. Each plague or judgment that follows the blowing of a trumpet has an impact on the earth in thirds, a third of the earth, a third of the sea, a third of the rivers, and so on. So we're meant to understand that these judgments are limited in their scope. And the limited nature of the judgments might be a hint that there are more terrible judgments still to come and room is being left for them. But I think actually there is more than that being implied here. Whilst there is no doubt that the primary purpose of these plagues is the judgment of God against unbelievers, the fact that the disaster brought by each of the trumpet plagues is limited suggests that they also act as a warning and a call to repent. In Israel's history, when God enacted his judgments against the people, the restraining of his wrath, the limiting of it, was always to allow for repentance. As the Apostle Peter writes about those who scoff about Christ's return and that they will do so on the basis of uh, that people have been sinning for a long time and continue to do so, but the judgment of God has not fallen on them, much like the people uh, of Jerusalem in Jeremiah's time. And Peter reminds them that God has in fact intervened in the past, as in the days of Noah. Then he reminds his readers 
uh, in 2 Peter 3 and 9 that the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to come to repent. God's hand is stayed. His wrath is restrained. It is limited in order that the judgments that he brings might serve as a warning to some and lead them to repentance. It reminds me of uh, Bob Dylan's great song, Are You Ready? from his album Saved. Are you ready for the judgment? Are you ready for that terrible swift sword? Are you ready for Armageddon? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? Are you ready? On the album, the, the backing vocalists on that recording echo the, that final question with a plea to get ready. And Revelation has made it clear that the only way to get ready is to be sealed with the seal of God. In other words, to pledge your allegiance, loyalty and trust in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection. Jesus said it very clearly. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thanks for listening today. May God bless you in the week ahead.